Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast, the number one value investing podcast in the world. Sitting next to my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if this is the first time that you are checking in with us, you know what I'm going to say. Be sure to check out all of our work. Go to focuscompounding.com. Jeff writes about ideas. We also have a free part on the website called the Gannon Gazette. You could enter in your email, and then you will get an email from us every couple of weeks with a free idea. And if you want to sign up on the website yourself, be sure to use the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and that will take $10 off of the uh, $60 uh, normal price, and definitely as long as you do stay a member. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to check out all of our other work as well. Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. I push out a lot of investing content, having a lot of fun doing it. And like I said, we are going to continue to innovate and educate. And we're very happy that you are following along with us. 160 something podcasts. And we're actually coming up on our two year anniversary. I looked at it the other day. I think yeah. it's February 20th or 18th, 15th. I don't know. It's coming okay. up. It's in a couple of weeks. So we're going to go crazy for that podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what will actually happen is we'll forget that it was our two year anniversary yeah. until after the fact. But in today's podcast, we are going to be going over the cash flow statement. Uh, we picked about four different companies and we're just going to be walking through it. Actually, us talking about the cash flow statement. Um, just like out loud is one of our most popular podcasts that we've ever done. And since we are innovating and we're recording our screen now, I decided why not actually go through the cash flow statement so everybody can see what we're seeing as well. So head over to YouTube to follow along for that. And then of course, if you're listening on the podcast side, we'll try talking out loud as best as possible to hopefully make it productive for them as well. So the first company that we are going to be going over is everyone's favorite cash generating company, Apple, Mm -hmm. ticker AAPL. Um, this is their 10K. I don't like this interactive version on the sec.gov website, um, uh, but it looks like they generated $55.2 billion in net income last year, which translates to $69 billion in cash flow Okay, from operating activities. So there's a few things about Apple's um, cash flow statement that's interesting slash not as helpful. What's interesting about. is I've never seen beginning balance above the operating activity. Have you seen that? Uh, so it has much. a beginning balance and then it'll have the end. Yeah, balance. at the bottom. But that's yeah. why I was like, oh, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah well, you read the amount of cash. Yep. So um, they put in the investing activities, their purchases of marketable securities and maturities of marketable yeah. securities, which is normally something that would be like a financing type thing. So this is going to make it harder because obviously people usually, I'm guessing a lot of people listening to this, like to use just the cash generated by operating activities line and then they subtract out of that the CapEx stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So it, you know, or maybe they also include acquisitions or something. So both of those are here under investing activities for Apple, but they're mixed in with a bunch of other things where they're buying uh, securities. So that's different. Uh, and then also um, the other thing that's interesting is if we just go and break down some of the operating activities ones. So the thing that stands out, right, is that there's a huge share-based compensation expense, uh-huh. right? So if you look at, so what's share-based compensation been on average, like around $5 billion? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what has their net income been the last three years on average? Uh, 20 
two billion. Oh, I'm sorry. That's again. I'm looking at the wrong line. Uh, probably fifty five billion ish. Right. So to actually, ten percent of their net income has been given away as as shares. You mm-hmm. know. Um. So it's a big item. Now that's what the thing about the cash flow statement is. Like as a shareholder, you might be thinking maybe you want to count that. That that's not really free cash flow counting the um, share based expense. I do using the share based expense as. Uh, dilution. So I really just look over a long period of time and see how much they're actually diluting their stock rather than actually treating the share-based compensation as an expense. But um, because we won't get into how they calculate the expense of share-based compensation, but I don't like it as much as just figuring out how much I'm being diluted over time. So mm-hmm. if a company tends to increase its share count by 1% a year before buybacks or something, I just assume my returns in the stock will be 1% worse forever, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, other people might use this cash flow statement, like creditors and things like that. So it's important that they see that there's a large non-cash expense. So Apple's understating their net income in terms of the actual cash available to pay creditors and things like that. Not that Apple has much in the way of creditors. Um, so some of the things you would look at is like depreciation and amortization, right? And then you would compare that to their uh, payments for acquisition of property, plant, and equipment mm-hmm. and see how similar they are. Um, yeah, there you go. And so that's basically their CapEx number and then that's their DNA number. Yeah, it's like very so, similar. Right. So it basically tells you that you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other things that you see here, they do have some deferred revenue. Uh, which you can see, which creates some float mm-hmm. by that. They have some other things that are a little unusual um, that they break out. The one that stands out to me, of course, is the vendor non-trade receivables. Okay. So the fact that it's non-trade is interesting, and I don't know what that means. Uh, and so that would depend on what that means. It was a big number in 2018, too. Yeah, so that would have to read the accounting note to figure out what that means if they're, they're doing... Um, uh, have unusual receivables from some uh, companies. How do you adjust for, or how do you think about working capital when you try to get to your free cash flow number? So I include um, changes in working capital to a significant extent. And we can get to that when we deal more with a company that has a meaningful amount of working mm-hmm. capital, I'd say. Um, if we have like a retailer or something like that. Which we'll, we do. We do. Okay. So that one will be useful to look at it there, I think. Yeah. Because um, here, those numbers are just small. Like, right, their inventory mm-hmm. numbers isn't a big number. Their account's payable, things like that. These are not huge numbers compared to their cash flow generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about um, under the finance activities portion? I don't find those useful. Um, some things could be useful. So, for instance, the if you see the actual amount of repurchase and the actual amount of dividends, it's just if those are big numbers, you would notice it. Yeah. But you should be reading the rest of the 10K where they disclose those things in greater detail. Sure. Uh, and more about that. So, like, yes, they talk about maturities of debt and things like that. Um, uh, but, you know, it, I don't know that that's that important. I mean, like, for instance, we can tell here that they're buying back stock. They're not issuing a lot of stock. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there are obvious things like that. So just Oops. you can kind of eyeball that. But mm-hmm. beyond that, I don't do a lot of that. It's all those things are disclosed in more detail in the 10K. Why do you think Buffett was interested in Apple? Uh, I think that he was interested because he saw it as a predictable company. Mm-hmm. Be- basically because he thought that people who already have um, iPhones won't switch to a different uh, co- company. They'll just get another version of the same phone. Mm-hmm. I really do. Yeah. It wasn't that expensive when he bought it, but I think until he knew that like the retention rate would be high, I don't think he was interested. Yeah, I mean, and he, I mean, followed the company for how long, right? Yeah, and but I don't think you could have known that far in advance of when he knew because uh, people who are on their first or second iPhone, I don't know that that's. I mean, maybe if you're very good at guessing those things, that you yeah. know they're going to be loyal to it. I don't know. Sure. You know, next company we're going to be looking at for the cash flow statement is Tandy Leather Factory. Mm-hmm. Every value investors 
favorite stock. Okay. And last year they did 1.9 billion. I'm sorry, 1.9 billion. I'm used <laughs> to the Apple. Yeah, yeah. 1.9 million in net income, which translated to about 7.3 million in cash flow from operating activities. Right. So this is very interesting, and that's why I wanted to uh, do one like this, like a retailer. This one has a ton of inventory. We could go into the details, but especially if you do like inventory turns, like I do, which is the amount of sales that they have versus their cost of goods sold, yeah. not their. I mean, I'm sorry, their cost of goods sold versus their inventory, not their sales versus their inventory, um, because they have large gross margins at handy. I think that gives you an idea of just how slowly they turn their inventory. This is a very high margin business, very high gross margins, but very very slow turning inventory. So everything about Tandy is focusing on what's the inventory levels, are they going to build up or decrease, a lot of like everything you're thinking about has a lot to do with inventory at Tandy. Why is their gross margin so predictable and so stable? Um, because you said it's one of the most predictable gross margins you've ever seen. It's very predictable. In the past. And it's more predictable than it appears to be because the unpredictable element is leather where they don't have pricing power. Um they have a lot. So some of the things they're selling are like kits and things, which are pretty much proprietary to them. Um, they can price pretty much how they want in those areas. Now, I think they've annoyed some people by their pricing, and their pricing was pretty complicated by charging different people different prices in the same store, um, sort of like an MRO does or something like that. But uh, yeah, they're extremely dominant in the leather crafting area. They are the they generally can have the lowest price and charge the most for anything. Both. Mm-hmm. So if there is some um, like uh, accessory tool, something that you would use with leather for leather crafting, that's fairly cheap—a few dollars, let's say a five-dollar, you know, belt buckle type thing or something. Um, something that's going to be used to make a belt buckle. Uh, I think that they generally can order a bigger run of it than anyone else, which gives them the lowest price. And I think that the Tandy name, people would be willing to pay the most at Tandy as at anywhere else. And so, yeah, I think that if you're in the position of being the lowest cost operator, Mm -hmm. while also being the company that has the best brand in the industry, then you have very good gross margins. It's an unusual thing. Not many companies, there are not many industries where you're both. Um, We did look at Apple. Apple might be both in some cases Mm -hmm. and some things going into their phones. So what about the working capital, though, to get to free cash flow? How would you... Like look at or think right. about that. So for that's candy. what we want to focus on. So see how big the swings are. So let's look at inventory, for example. So what were the changes in inventory that we saw in 2016, 17? So in 2016, it was 407,000. Uh, 2017, 4.1 million. And then in 2018, it was 3.4 okay, uh, million. But, but 2007 negative, was negative. Yeah. Right, so that's a use of cash. So yep. their inventory built by 4 million yep. in 2017. Mm-hmm. It. Um, and then it reversed that to a substantial extent in 2018. Yeah, so a few reversal. interesting things about this. This is for the year ended December 31st for each of those. Yep. The business is obviously seasonal and would probably have unusually high inventory levels going into the last quarter of the year. And then they would produce a lot of cash in that quarter. So it's important that we're looking at an annual number here, not a quarterly number. The quarterly number is probably very unstable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an interesting thing about it. I know that the new CEOs wanted to really cut down on inventory and things like that. My concern would mainly be slow moving inventory and stuff like that. Their accounting issue I know has to do with inventory too. They're currently haven't they're not current in their filings. They haven't filed at least two ten Qs and they might fail to file a third um, because of an accounting issue. Uh, which I know has to do with because they're having the restate years and stuff like that as well. They aren't probably they? will have to yeah. restate a lot of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so if we look, then you see things like, um, so if you look, the purchase of property plan equipment, right? Yep. So that's their CapEx line. Notice that their CapEx line is generally not that big compared to their inventory swings, right? Mm -hmm. So the inventory is swinging often by more than their total amount of CapEx spending. That's really remarkable for a company to have that happening. So why is that? Well, so they lease their stores. Their stores aren't very big. So it's telling you that there isn't actually a lot of property plan and equipment being put in. Uh, whereas there is a ton of investment in inventory. And in fact, I, if I remember right, their investment in inventory in new stores is very high compared to their investment in like um, uh, getting it ready to um, be used as a store. So if I remember, I, I wrote a report on this company and I've seen things written up recently. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I'm going to guess we're talking something like $75,000 to get a store ready absent inventory, but then like $150,000 of inventory is what you would need mm -hmm. to get started. Um, and gross profit from this company might only be $500,000 per store or something. So they're very small stores. They don't do a huge amount of uh, business. Um, and that's why they're such a small um, leftover operating margin, despite the huge gross margin, right? So they have gross margins of like 60% or something, but they have operating margins that look kind of normal for a retailer. Whereas most retailers might be more in the 30 to 40% gross margin. So that means their SGNA and stuff is much lower. Um, we have depreciation and we can compare that to CapEx. So that's one of the typical things we do. So just look at 2016, 2017, 2018. Is it generally a bit higher, lower, the same as purchase of property, plan, and equipment? So uh, DNA in 2018 was 1.7 million and it, uh, they used about a million in uh, in 2018 okay. in cash. In 2017, they DNA was 1.8 million and they used about 1.6 in CapEx. And in 2016, it was 1.7 and they used about 1.7. Okay. So it's pretty, so pretty similar. It's yeah. similar, but it's lower CapEx than depreciation. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that probably is that they haven't opened new stores the last couple of years on a net basis. They've relocated some stores. But um, that's interesting because it tells you that in a mature state, which might be if they can't grow same store sales where you're going to be, um, you're, you don't, your DNA is not in any way understating the amount of CapEx you have to do. Um, so it, it, the a lot of the things here are telling me that this is a company that would be, so we're not talking about it from like looking at quick FS to see the price ratios and stuff on this stock, but it's cheap. It's very, very cheap compared mm -hmm. to things like assets and compared to any historical earnings. Um, for instance, you can see that earnings fell off a cliff from 2017 to 2018, and they actually declined even for right from 2016 to 2018. But the interesting part, like look at, this is the really interesting one that you'll notice. So go 2016 to 2018, what's the change in net income? I mean, just tell me. Uh, 6.4 million in 2016 to 1.9 in 2018. Right, and people care a lot about earnings, so they're thinking, okay, so their earnings declined by that much. But yeah. what's the change in net in cash? Absolutely nothing. It's gone from 7.7 .7 million right. to 7.3 million. So if I'm an owner of the business, what do I really care about? I can withdraw the same amount of cash in 2018 as I did in 2016, mm -hmm. even though I'm seeing much worse earnings. Now, 2018 was worse than 2016. There are legitimate reasons for why the earnings are lower, which we can see in terms of the changes in some things. So for instance, having a big shift in like inventory or something, selling down a lot of inventory, they sold $3 million worth of inventory or something, like they lowered their amount of inventory by $3 million or something, if I'm reading that right, in 2018. Um, is, you know, you liquidated inventory. So that's not a great source of earnings quality. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, you can see that right there. the truth is somewhere in between. The truth is not really, they didn't really make as poorly as $2 million in 2018 in my mind. And they didn't really make as good as six whatever in, in 2016. It isn't really a two-thirds drop in earnings in terms of whether they dropped in cash and things like that. And just the the 
solvency of the business and stuff held up really well. And I think that's because of the things we're talking about with inventory, whereas Mm -hmm. they may have had too much inventory. And that's always been my concern with the businesses, whether they have uh, too much inventory and whether they can get adequate returns on their inventory, because if they can have literally adequate turns of the inventory. Um, So it's very interesting. It's, it's not challenged at all financially from what I can tell by the numbers that we're seeing here. These are very good cash flow numbers. You can mm-hmm. see that's a lot of cash. Yeah, produced. definitely. So those three years, right. They produced on a uh, cumulatively. What is that? If we just truncate each of them, that's seven, seven and uh, two. Right. Mm-hmm. So we know that they produced like probably way over 16 million and they never spent more than 2 million in capex. What's the market cap on it? Like 20, it's like less than 30 million, isn't it? I think it's closer to fifty million. Now, is it? Really? Right? It recovered a bit. It's in the five. Last I checked, it's in the five fifties range. Yeah. Okay, so you're right. So it had been down million. to four fifty or something at one time. Yeah, the EV is probably lower because they have a significant amount of cash on hand. Probably, um, it's the kind of thing that if they could turn around, would be um, it would produce a lot of cash pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. This is a company that produces more cash than people think when it's not being eaten up by inventory. That's the sort of the one risk is that gets eaten up by inventory. Mm-hmm. So anyway, of the stocks we've talked about so far, um, definitely Tandy is the kind of thing where you would focus a lot on the cash flow statement and the balance sheet. So it's way more important for a company like that than it is for than like the net, like the income statement stuff. Right. Yeah. Got it. Next company we're going to be looking at Exxon Mobil Corporation. Okay. We've never looked at this company before. And no, and this will be in billions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Let's see if we can find the cash flow statement. Let's see. Scrolling down. <clears throat> All right. Mm-hmm. Balance sheet. Here we go. Statement of cash flows. Mm-hmm. They generated $36 billion in cash okay. in 2018, $30 billion in 2017, and $22 billion in 2016. Okay. Let's see. Additions to property, plant, and equipment, $19.5 billion. Should look at their debt. So this is interesting because they, this is a very not helpful cash flow statement. So one, they've combined a lot of different lines together because they're a huge company. And yep. So it's difficult to understand what's going on there. Um, some things are obviously hugely important, right? So depreciation and depletion. Um, depletion is just use of a natural resource here. So it's normal for an oil company. There's sometimes tax advantages to it too. So they actually mean taking oil out of the ground in addition to other things. Um, and then we also have additions to property, plant, and equipment kind of offsetting that. Now, we don't know unless we looked at the reserves thing. And these companies file with the SEC a uh, present value of their reserves, like a discounted thing that's standardized for all oil companies. I believe that will be like an appendix near the back of it. Um, and then we could get an idea of like if the reserves went up or down, given this, if oil prices were the same. Now mm-hmm. it's going to reflect oil prices changing, but you can take that out. Um, so I think that if you're seeing fairly stable uh, capex and uh, d- you know offsetting depletion and uh, depletion that's about the same while your reserves are growing then that's one way of thinking about it if they're shrinking while this is happening then that's the other way of thinking about it so you kind of want to say do does capex need to be more than dna basically that's mm-hmm. the thing we look at all the time the rest of the things that they've inc- included are very confusing and difficult to understand without knowing a lot more about the business in terms of the cash flow from operations because we have things that have to do with retirement stuff in here we have things that have to do with um, things that they received from uh, equity companies, which is a whole accounting thing that we won't get into here. Um, there's tax stuff in here. There's a lot mixed in with the cash flow from operations that just 
isn't it's not gonna be useful i wouldn't trust that cash flow from operations as much as we would normally would um there's also an item here that we didn't talk about but i'll talk about it now i generally ignore proceeds from sales of different assets that they have but obviously this is a company that does that a lot mm -hmm. so they have several billion dollars a year coming in from um selling stuff off which in a sense you can use to offset the capex right mm -hmm. because if we assume that they're selling off some things which include reserves of barrels of oil at the same time they're also investing in buying out more barrels of oil through capex stuff then um we really should be offsetting them for most companies i don't do that i just assume that anything that you get back is sort of a one-time thing but a lot of companies you'll see asset disposals bringing back some money mm -hmm. you know you close down something and you sell off a store and you get some cash for it um i don't really count that and i just use the capex number but obviously for exxon here you're seeing that it's a big number every single year mm-hmm how would you think about a company that is like a serial acquirer? How would you think about the free cash flow if they're constantly buying, you know, businesses and stuff if, like that? If they're really doing that, then you add up the acquisition price of the businesses, which you'll see there. Um, although remember, that's only the cash acquisition price that you're mm -hmm. getting um, combined with the capex to get an idea of, mm -hmm. of what it is. Um, I, I think so. It's basically another form of capex, but I think there's two ways of doing it. One is to like which is my preferred way of doing it is to kind of imagine what the company would look like if it didn't acquire things. And then the other one is to do it if it does acquire things. So like what would it grow organically and things like that is more the right way to do it because the acquisitions are so lumpy that mm -hmm. it's very hard, even if they're a zero acquirer to have similar numbers every year to get a good idea just by looking at three years. Got it. Interesting. Last company we're going to be looking at today is Brinkers. Okay. Ticker uh, EAT. It's probably my favorite ticker on the planet. They own a bunch of chilies. What else do they own? Chili's, um, what else? I don't know uh, what they still own. They own restaurants. Yes. Net income in 2019, $155 million, which translated into $212 million in cash from operating activities. Let's mm -hmm. see, what else? Payments for property and equipment, $167 million. Yes. Interesting. So... Um, couple things stand out again is interesting one that we could talk about here obviously is that there's gift card liability right mm -hmm. yeah. so they have a liability which is that they've received cash up front so like a form of float, float. Yeah, yeah it's float and i don't know how they account for it they may we'd have to read the accounting statement note to see if they also assume that some of the money will never be um uh, used, you know, that some will end up in someone's drawer somewhere and they never go and use the um, gift card. Uh, of course, that may be um, on like a balance sheet item that might be deceptive depending on the time of year. I would assume that there are more gift cards out in, you know, January than there are in, you know, March or sure, something. Sure, yeah. But um, uh, so, yeah, it's a form of float basically. And then you could look at that as um, uh, sort of like a deferred re revenue or mm -hmm. like an unearned um, premiums or something for a. Um, Insurer. They also have restaurant supplies here, which is the closest thing that you're going to see to like inventory, basically. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way of treating it. Um, so you have accounts receivable, inventory, restaurant supplies, probably are the things you would take together as being the sort of like actual tangible investment in the business added together with the property and, and equipment. So those lines are usually going to be the most important. I'm just throwing restaurant supplies in with inventories. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly the difference here. Um, and so those four lines are probably your most important ones. Like prepaid expenses are a pretty small item. They're probably just prepaying their rent for that month and stuff and things like that. Um, and those are kind of the things that you would focus on. And then you're offsetting them versus things like accounts payable and, and accrued payroll. So you'd be looking and saying, okay, well, let's take those items and see which ones are moving each way to get us an idea on the cash flow. 
for a restaurant, what's normally going to happen is the cash flow is going to be pretty stable. Um, so changes in the cash flow from operations generally, not unlike Tandy, let's say, are probably going to tell you something that's happening in the business. So let's look at their cash flow from operations the last three years. Okay. Uh, Two hundred twelve million, uh-huh. two hundred eighty-five million, and three hundred fifteen million. Right, but chronologically, it's reverse order. Mm-hmm. So that means that it's been, it's been going down, going down that yep. way. Yeah. However, um, it's been going down that way on fairly stable net income, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something that I'd be very interested in looking into. Um, just like with Tandy, yeah, because the net it's income telling a different story, the mm-hmm. cash flow than the net income, than the income statement. Yeah, right? the income is saying about the same in twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen. But the cash flow is down $100 million in the cash flow from operations. So why is that? What items are we seeing that are big? Um, a big one is taxes, right? Mm, sure. So I think that in this case, this is almost all explainable by taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Or largely explainable. Uh, almost all explainable. I'd have to do that in my head, but that looks like that's taxes. Yeah. So it seems like we're getting a, it, absent taxes. We would have very similar net income and very similar cash flow from operations, meaning the business looks about the same in 2019 as 2017. That's a big thing to look out for is that uh, U.S. companies are going to mix in tax stuff immediately with the cash flow statement. So it's all after-tax things. So that's a huge issue these last few years with the corporate tax cuts mm-hmm. and things like that, so to pay a lot of attention to that. Uh, in other countries, you're going to see different treatment of taxes having to do with uh, where you see on the Have you ever owned a restaurant? I have not owned a restaurant stock. I have written about restaurant stocks Mm -hmm. and generally find that I put them in the same category as retailers. Yeah, just kind of like a... I put them in two different categories. So I would be happy to own Starbucks. Okay. Or Domino's. Yeah. Or probably Subway. Uh... Maybe some fast food things. I would not be happy to own things usually like Cheesecake Factory or BJ's or uh, any of those sorts of things. So you're more like with the QSRs? It's the frequency. Mm -hmm. So it's just a question of how often do I think each customer is using it? I was going to say, do you think it... How mindlessly are they using it? I was going to say, do you think it's more of like a... uh, like a psychology thing. Like people will go to Starbucks every single day, a lot it's of them, but the you're not going to go to Chili's every single right. day. It's good if the product is being ordered digitally, it's cheap and addictive. So it's easy, easy to judge it. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, I would prefer all those yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. It's good if it's very convenient based. Chipotle. Uh, if, you, if you have to drive by it all the time. Yeah. yeah things like that. Um, so I don't, yeah. I mean, um, as opposed to like uh, a risk in terms of uh, it, the other restaurants that we're talking about are more almost like a fashion risk type thing, but for food. Um, that some things are more popular or less popular at a time. Um, and, and so they have to do things competing with their menu and all that sort of stuff. And it's more complicated just in terms of the prices and things. So yeah, I would rather own Starbucks than Outback or something like that. I'd rather own Domino's than whatever else, even though I might rather eat at not Domino's. Mm-hmm. I'd rather <laughs> own Domino's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, and definitely the things that I would like best would be beverage things, right? But also things that are, um, and breakfast things and stuff like that, more habitual things. The things I would like the least are full service service uh dinner focused businesses right so those would be the ones that'd be the biggest concern the other thing you have to remember with a lot of these too is huge difference is how often do you go to cheesecake factory alone not often how often do you go to chipotle alone all the time that makes a huge difference in customer behavior and something that to really focus on yeah that's interesting yeah yeah. i mean even starbucks is like that too right right? yeah the frequency of it yeah so those i'd be interested in would be the ones that people go to alone what about duncan same concept, right? Yeah. No, Dunkin' would be very interesting there. And, of course, that's franchise the same as mm-hmm. Domino's and stuff. They're very similar that way, yeah. Interesting. Um, so those would be much more interesting to me than than uh, companies like, you know, that operate Chili's and Olive Garden and those sorts of things. Though they're more predictable than people think. 
I mean, honestly, their their earnings and things of those are a lot more predictable than a lot of retailers and stuff. So I think restaurants are tend to be more predictable than people. Successful restaurant concepts that are mature tend to be more predictable than people think. Um, but I'm still not that interested in them. And it would be more interested in ones that are more habit-based, cheaper, that you go to alone, those sorts of things. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself in today's podcast, going over the cash flow statement. If this is the first time that you are tuning in with us, be sure to subscribe button, thumbs this video up. Uh, that helps spread the word. Leaving us a rating review also helps spread the word. We're trying to hack the YouTube algo. The okay. YouTube algo. So also, if you want to help us, leave us a comment. I think that also does it. You know, yeah, we're putting up all these con all this content, and we're trying to, uh, yeah, yes, hopefully a nice one. And we're trying to get it out to the masses. And I think the way to hack the YouTube algo is to leave us a comment and thumbs this video up. Be sure to also check out all of our other work. Jeff is writing up 250 plus write ups this year at FocusCompounding.com. Use the podcast promo code, which is podcast, to take some money off of the subscription price indefinitely. My name is Andrew Kuhn. His name is Jeff Gannon. You are listening to the number one value investing podcast in the world, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.